Ace is the place with the helpful hardware, folks. It's Ace's biggest LED light bulb sale of the year. Right now, buy one, get one free on our best-selling LED light bulbs. Our four-pack of LED bulbs is $9.99, and our two-pack of LED floodlights is only $12.99. Buy one, get one free. There's no limit on how much you can save, so stock up now. Hurry in. Buy one, get one free on long-lasting 10-year LED bulbs, now through Monday, only at your neighborhood Ace. See participating stores for details. You are Locked On Magic, your daily podcast on the Orlando Magic. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. And you are indeed listening to Locked On Magic. Today is September 4th, 2017. My name is Philip Rossenreich. I'm the expert and site editor of OrlandoMagicDaily.com. And today I am joined by our good pal Ben DuBose of Locked On Rockets. Ben, happy Labor Day. How are you doing today? Doing well. Always nice to have a holiday. It's been a bit of a turbulent week in the Houston area, so it definitely is nice having an extra day off before uh, you know everybody goes back to work, back to business tomorrow. Yeah, def- and I definitely want. I mean, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about that. You, you being in in the Houston area, you know, covering covering the Houston Rockets. Uh, how how what's this what's the status? I guess of of the recovery from from Hurricane Harvey uh, over in Houston. I mean, obviously, it's still been it's still dominating the news as as it should. Uh, but what's, sure. what's, what, what's kind of the mood in Houston these days? It's it, it varies so much from one place to the next. The good news, people from Houston have been through these types of storms before, maybe not to this severity, but it's a pretty resilient town. And so I think even the people that uh, were most afflicted by this, they're pretty determined to rebuild and get back to the, the way things were. But really, it, it's just amazing. You go from one area of town to the next, and there's so much for it variability. There's a big push led by the mayor to kind of get back to normalcy as quickly as possible. I tend to agree with that. It looked like for a while the Astros were going to cancel all the games. The Astros ended up staying at home this weekend. They had a series, uh, won them all. It was a very kind of boisterous crowd. You could tell there were a lot of people that wanted to get out and wanted to get to some semblance of normalcy. I think there's always a push for that. But then at the same time, you know, you also look around, you'll see these pockets of emptiness. There are freeways that are still submerged, and they expect to remain that way for at least another 10 days or so before the water recedes, which of course speaks to uh, just how much of a deluge the Houston area faced, some inches getting over, I mean, some areas getting over 50 inches of rain. So it depends on exactly what part of town, exactly who you talk to. Some people definitely had it worse than others. Myself, my wife and I, we were one of the lucky ones. We were without power for five days, but we didn't have any water in our homes. We've since, as of a few days ago, we got power back. Everything for us is as close to normal as it can be. But it's one of those things, if you know you're lucky, then certainly financially volunteering, you know, I think we're all trying to do whatever we can to try and, uh, you know, rebuild it as quickly as possible. And it's one of those things you don't want to you know, you don't want to diminish what the people who lost their homes are going through. But at the same time, most people I've talked to that, you know, did suffer severe damages, I don't think they expect the world to stop. In some respects, you know, they want the world to move on because in addition to just restoring the homes, part of it is just psychologically as a community, just moving on and getting back to the way you were. And so now that we're basically the week after Hurricane Harvey, what I'm trying to do, and I think most people around Houston, you know, of course, you want to volunteer. You want to donate money. There's lots of great causes. J.J. Watt, the Astros, uh, the, the mayor's office. There's all sorts of good funds that you can donate to. And, of course, you want to do that. You want to volunteer. 
But beyond that, the best thing you can do is just try and get back to normal as quickly as you can. And so that's why, you know, I took a week off on my show not to really talk about basketball, not really to talk about sports. But, you know, now it's the week after. Now it's September. Training camps are just around the corner. Football starts next week, et cetera, et cetera. So it's kind of like, you know, you don't want to diminish the pain of what a lot of people are going through. But I think everyone, at least as a community, is ready in Houston to, you know, start talking about basketball again, start talking about sports and just, you know, get back at least a little bit to normal life. Yeah, and that's, I, I mean, as Floridians, we, I mean, we go through hurricanes fairly often, not as, maybe not as bad as, as Harvey, or at least not in a very long time. Uh, but, you know, there's definitely the sense of returning to normalcy, kind of getting, getting back into routine is, is therapeutic. And it sounds, it sounds great that, that Houston is starting to do that after such a devastating storm, obviously, that the effects are still going to be felt. And, and, and it seems like you and, and, of course, a lot of people around this country are, are doing whatever they can to help. Uh, but yeah, but it, yeah. And I think sports, sports are a big part of that too. You know, obviously talking sports like we do with our podcast, but as I said, the Astros stayed this weekend. I thought that was a nice touch to have them in town for three games, bring it together. There was talk of the Texans. Their first game is next weekend. There was talk right after the, the, uh, the storm that that game might, that the Texans and Jaguars, the Jaguars, of course, going to Houston might flip and do that in Jacksonville. Instead, they're going to keep it. And I think that's really you know, sports can be kind of a galvanizing thing, in my opinion, you know, in circumstances like this. So, you know, the Astros staying in town, the Texans keeping that game, the Rockets about to start camp, you know, in many ways, sports can be a part of the healing process. And so I think that's what we're seeing in Houston. And I know you guys in Florida have seen that as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I can't think of, I mean, it's different type of tragedy, but I mean, I remember after, after the Pulse shooting, the Orlando, the first Orlando yep. City game was just incredibly emotional, and, yep. and the community, the community really needed that to help heal. And so, and, and not not only that, it's it, it just it feels it's it always I always feel like sports just does a great job bringing the community together. Yeah, uh, and so it's able to kind of highlight uh, highlight you know ways that people can help and, and ways that they can just be together and and just again find that normalcy again. So sounds great yep. that Houston Houston is is back on its feet. We I mean I I said this. Uh, when I talked about the Jonathan Simmons story about uh, him getting him literally getting rescued by uh, by right. uh, by the rapper, I'm blanking on his name. My apologies. I, I apologize. But <laughs> if if anyone knows the heart that Houston has, it's 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 Orlando, because we know never to question the heart of a champion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think '95. Everyone remembers that very well. Yeah, yeah. But. This podcast isn't to rehash the uh, the '95 finals at all. We could we could do that another day. This podcast, yeah. I wanted to bring you on, Ben, because this Friday, of course, Tracy McGrady gets inducted into the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame. And when you think of Tracy McGrady, I I think most people think of two teams: the Orlando Magic and the Houston Rockets. And so I thought yep. it'd be good to to talk to you a little bit about his career and, and what his career career meant to, to the NBA and, and why he's a Hall of Famer because I think there's still a little bit of pushback against him making the Hall of Fame because his, his star mm-hmm. was bright but it shined for a very very brief time on uh, you know seven all-star games yes. so he didn't have the longevity he didn't have the playoff success so I, I, I'll start I'll start with this what are your general I guess memories or, or the general argument you have for for Tracy McGrady my argument for Tracy being a Hall of Famer, and I think it's an easy decision, is that when he was healthy and at his prime, I would say, what, probably 2001. I know you're more of an Orlando guy than I am, but 
what's it was the summer of 2001 that he signed with Orlando, summer, right? Summer of 2000, he signed with the Mavericks. Oh, 2000, that's right. Yeah, 2001 2000. season was his first year in Orlando. Yeah. So I would say from there through about 2007 was his prime, about half of it in Orlando, half in Houston. But the argument for me, and I think it's a pretty simple one, is that when he was at his best, this was a top five player in the NBA. He was that dominant. He was that feared. And I know he never won a ring in the prime of his career. He never led a team to a championship. But there are a lot of other factors that go into winning that are not just you know, as much as a certain segment of basketball Twitter tries to make it seem like player X can just will his team to a win. In reality, it's not really that simple for Tracy. There were some flawed teams, both in Orlando and Houston, and we can get into that later. But for me, it's just pretty simple. Basketball, more than any other sport, is about individual dominance. And when he was at his best, he was the kind of guy that could carry a team that was that dominant, that feared. And of course, I think back, especially his early time in Houston, Everyone remembers the uh, 13 points in 35 seconds, the incredible comeback against the San Antonio Spurs. That was a regular season game. I remember more the uh, first playoff series he played in Houston against the Dallas Mavericks. Uh, game two, he had the infamous dunk over Sean Bradley. Pretty much ended Bradley's career, you might say. And uh, and then he actually hit the uh, game-winning dagger with a couple of seconds left in that game in Dallas. Um, you know, Tracy, for all, you know, he never... You know, he was never the alpha dog on an NBA Finals team, but boy, he had a you know a killer instinct streak to him too. That late in games, he made some cold-blooded shots, and I just keep coming back to the fact that when he's at his best, he was a dominant top five player. And to me, that's to me that's at the forefront of the list when you talk about Hall of Famers because I know longevity, I know the argument, but you know my response to that would be, well, you want to talk about all-time NBA scorers? The two top guys on the NBA scorers list, scorers list all time are Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Karl Malone. Does anyone think that those are the two best scorers in NBA history? I'm pretty confident that everyone would say no, and that's not being disrespectful to either of those players. Both are fabulous players, worthy Hall of Famers. But they aren't all-time great scorers, at least from a sheer dominance perspective. They're up there because of longevity, because they're able to play into their 40s, and in some respects— that's really admirable. That's impressive. But at the same time, there are players, certainly you look at Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan, guys in that regard, that didn't have the longevity that uh, Kareem or Karl Malone did, but at their peak were even more dominant. And on a smaller scale, that's how I look at Tracy. I understand his prime largely because of injuries. First his back, then his knee was shorter. But to me, you know, you ask, you look at someone like Tracy, who was a top five player at his peak. And then you look at basketball, which more than any sport is correlated with individual dominance. You know, you go back over the course of basketball more than any sport there is. It, basketball winning titles comes down to, you know, whether you have that truly transcendent player. And so when you look at a player like Tracy, even if it's short, if you have that kind of transcendent talent for multiple seasons, then to me, that's a Hall of Famer because the game of basketball, as I said, it, it's about that individual brilliance. That's what it comes down to. So, yeah, yeah for me, Tracy's an easy. Yeah, and, and 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 I I mean I agree. When when T Mac was in his prime, it was clear that that he was a top five player in the NBA. I mean I, I remember in the early days of the uh, early ish days of the earlier days of the internet, sitting on like CBS Sports message boards, and there would be legitimate <laughs> arguments, the legitimate threads that would go on for pages of who's better, Tracy McGrady or Kobe Bryant. I mean I I, I think that. That that I remember that being a legitimate argument, and 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 I was a Magic yep. fan, so of course I argued for T Mac. Uh, but 
it 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 felt that that close and that that real and and we always all kind of wondered well if you gave T Mac Shaq of T Mac would be winning titles too I mean it was it was it was that simple uh, and you know Orlando never got him the help that he needed but at the same time I think that helped him to flourish and really find that that scoring touch that that dominated the league I mean I remember you know you talked about him he kind of got this reputation for not being clutch or not having that killer instinct which. We all kind of knew it was wrong. I mean, he had. You talk about the big shot he had. I remember in his first playoff series with the Magic, they were playing Milwaukee in Game Three. They're mm-hmm. down 2-0. They're in overtime. T Max scores 42 points and pretty much carries that team to victory. I mean, he the, the the teams that he had to carry in Orlando specifically were. You look at the names on those teams, and it is not impressive. Grand Hill's hurt, and so he's You're playing right. with. You know, uh, Daryl Armstrong, who Magic fans know really well, but is, he's probably Daryl's not very well known around the league. Uh, you've got Mike Miller, a young Mike Miller. Um, you've got the center rotation was a disaster. I mean, I, I love John Amici as much as the next guy, but he wasn't the greatest NBA player in the world. Right. Uh, Andrew DeClerc, Pat Garrity, uh, at one yeah. point, old Patrick Ewing, at one point, old Sean Kemp. Uh, it, the, the Magic never could get the right team around him to, to, to compete. And yet, every time you went to the stadium, and, and this was always what I, what, this is what I miss about the T-Mac era, not that I don't like the current Magic team or, or any Magic team since, but every time you went to the arena, you knew T-Mac could do something incredibly special. Um, he, he, he had that yep. much magnetism about him. You know, you knew he, you knew he was going to get 20 points on a bad day, but on, on a good day, he could drop 45 points and it looked like nothing and, and there'd be nothing a defense could do. I mean, I think I remember in Orlando, one of the big criticisms of the offense was T-Mac would kind of do his thing and everyone would just stand around and watch. And, and it was like, everyone was a fan of his game. They just wanted to see what he could do. And, you know, maybe that would be a little bit different in today's style where there's a lot more passing. I mean, he was playing in the early 2000s when there was a lot of one-on-one basketball. But he was, I think, one of the best players for that era just because he was just this massive scorer. He just never had the help around him to, right. to get him to that next level. I mean, even, even when he was in Houston because the injuries began to catch up to him. Yeah, and, you know, I think about Tracy as a scorer. He's as gifted as there's ever been. I mean, he could score 30 points like it was nothing. And, of course, he had the athleticism. He averaged 30 points points per game in a season, 2003. Right. Yeah, it was was so easy for him. And, of course, you know, he's a very athletic guy, but he also – well, A, he had a quick release. But more than that, he was so smart. He was such an underrated passer. And, uh, you know, of course, he had lofty assist holes a lot of times. But in addition to that – he was always, it seemed like, mentally a step ahead of the game. And so that helped him as a scorer as well. He was able to see the floor in a way that only a few guys could. And, it, yeah, incredibly gifted scorer, a good passer on top of it, good rebounder. Because of his length, he was also a good defender when he was at his prime before the back and knee injuries took a little bit of that athleticism from him. But, yeah, the, the team standpoint, the, the knocks on him for not having more success, I mean, that's just ridiculous. And especially today, because today's NBA, look, I'm not disrespecting them, but we're in an NBA where Kevin Durant signed with Stephen Curry and a 73-win team. We know what LeBron James did signing with Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh. That's how important teammates are, that even top-of-the-line guys like LeBron and Kevin Durant are trying to do everything they can to get the most talent around them. And Tracy, when he was in... Orlando, you know, the idea in 2000 was not just for Tracy and Grant, but they were almost got Tim Duncan as well. Well, they didn't get Tim Duncan. And then 
Grant Hill in Orlando was just uh, unfortunately a non-factor due to all the ankle injuries over. Like, he played like sixty games in the four years T Mac was in. Orlando. Yeah, so it's so yeah. Essentially, that group in Orlando, you know, it was supposed to be it, what Tracy, Grant Hill, and Tim Duncan. That was supposed to be LeBron, Wade, and Bosh. That was the original super before. team. Four. Yeah, that was the original super team, and it just never got off the ground. And unfortunately, when you commit that much money, especially in that NBA, because that NBA, the salary cap was so low, the Grant Hill thing just kind of. Uh, precluded you from moving on from that and then in Houston you know his first coach was Jeff Van Gundy and Houston on paper it was a better fit for him than Orlando and they did have more success I get why Tracy wanted to go to Houston the foundation of Tracy and Yao went healthy and they weren't healthy nearly enough but when healthy it was pretty good but Houston had a fundamentally flawed roster as well because those Jeff Van Gundy teams Jeff Van Gundy is a great coach from an X's and O's standpoint he could coach defense like no one I've ever seen but offensively Jeff Van Gundy's input on roster building was not very good I don't know if you remember those first few years when Tracy was at his prime which was those first two or three years in Houston yeah there was Tracy and Yao but then the role players surrounding them you had Clarence Weatherspoon Ryan (sighs) Bowen David Wesley Bob Sura Jim Jackson those were guys playing major minutes in playoff series and you know they wanted them because they were prototype Jeff Van Gundy guys, but in reality, they in reality, Van Gundy in Houston had built a roster that you know looked like a relic. It looked like something that would have played in the mid to late '90s NBA. That slow plotting style, and then you, of course, you have the two superstars in Tracy and Yao, and you know he believed that he could get it to work. In reality, back then in the early 2000s, the NBA was already transitioning to what we see today, teams like the Warriors and now to a lesser extent the Rockets with James Harden and Chris Paul, but that up-tempo style. You look at the teams in you know 2004 when Tracy was traded to Houston that were really good in the Western Conference. The Suns, of course, that was when Mike D'Antoni was taking off. Steve Nash, Amari Stoudemire, Joe Johnson, Sean Marion. The Mavs had Dirk, Michael Finley, Jason Terry, Josh Howard. So much depth, so much athleticism, so much playmaking potential. I know the Spurs were thought of back then as kind of you know a slower team because initially it was Tim Duncan and David Robinson. But by then, Robinson had retired, and the Spurs were starting to become the Spurs we know today in terms of the ball movement. That was when Tony Parker and Manu Ginobili, two definite Hall of Famers, I would say, were in their primes and kind of breaking out. So essentially what was happening in the Western Conference, and I would really say the NBA as a whole at the time, you were seeing a transition to more diverse styles of attacks, more free-flowing offense. And the Rockets, as great as Tracy and Yao were, they did not have any depth of playmaking behind them. And so that's why the Rockets were kind of stuck in. You know, Even they were healthy, they were a nice team, you know, low to mid-50s, somewhere 50 to 55 wins. But the roster was built, you know, the Rockets were slow adapting to the curve. And so that's why I don't hold those teams against Tracy. Yes, I know they blew a 2 nothing lead. Against Dallas, but when you look at the the depth on that Dallas team with Dirk in his prime compared to the guys that were around Tracy and Yao, the Dallas roster was just overall deeper and better. And then, unfortunately, by the time you know 2006 was when the Rockets first started working with Daryl Morey, 2007 is when he first started as GM. And yeah, they they turned it around very quickly. The first draft that Morey had in his own, they drafted Aaron Brooks and Carl Landry. Those guys ended up being great role players. They brought in Luis Scola from San Antonio, signed him out of Argentina. Um, what else did they do? Oh, yeah, before the 2008-2009 season, they traded for Ron Artest, which was a great move. 
But unfortunately, by the time those guys, the Brooks, Landry, Scola, Artest, the, the great role players that we saw late in the 2000s in Houston, by that point, unfortunately, that was when both Tracy and Yao were, you know, past their prime physically. And of course, it happened too soon. But it's just one of those things for Tracy, the timing never ended up both in Orlando and Houston. He just never had that roster around him where you point to it and you say, wow, that team is a contender. He never had that. And, you know, as far as I'm concerned, it's not a Tracy problem. It's a it's a team building problem. Yeah, and the, the 2009 team, I mean, outside that Spurs team that he kind of hitched a ride on, the 2009 team is, is probably the, the team that advanced the furthest in the playoffs with McGrady. On, with McGrady. Uh, and he didn't play in the playoffs, of course. He played only 35 games that, that year. So by then, his, his body right. had really begun to break down. And, and, and that was always unfortunate. I mean, I, I think I remember the first game when he hurt his back, and it was just, it was just devastating. And, you know, you bring up an interesting point about the role players because, you know, a lot of those problems, I think, were mirrored in Orlando. Just the talent just was mm-hmm. not there to, to support him. It's, it's part, of the, part of the problem problem with discussing McGrady or, or is, is part of the reason why McGrady broke down so quickly is, is just that he had to carry so much of the playmaking burden that he never had that secondary ball handler to allow him to play off the ball more. I think that's part of it, especially with the back. With the knee, it's tough to say because, you know, there were some acute injuries there. But in terms of his back, he's talked about it before. But, you know, there's a structural weakness there. And when you look at that kind of thing, you know, with backs, it is directly correlated with your workload. So I think for Tracy, with a guy whose main issue is, uh, you know, having a bulky back, then, yeah, not having the supporting cast around you, you can't ever take a game off. You know, I'll, I'll make a comparison. I think a, a guy who had similar back problems throughout his career to a small extent and eventually ended up catching up with him was Larry Bird in the 80s. And, of course, I'm not saying Tracy was as dominant of a player as Larry Bird. This is just a, you know, a parallel in terms of their injuries. And, you know, as great as Larry was, you know, th- those Celtics teams did have guys like Kevin McHale, like Robert Parrish, to where to where the burden was not all on Larry Bird. And that's how he was able to have a prime that lasted 10 plus years before eventually the structural weakness in his back caught up with him, as opposed to Tracy, you know, the guys you listed in Orlando, the guys in Houston, other than Yao Ming, were basically carbon copies of the types of role players you saw in Orlando. There's just there was a burden on Tracy that has not been on many elite players in the history of the NBA. And then you you put all of that on somebody that has a weak back. And, of course, a weak back is kind of, you know, that relates to so many other things because so many things can put stress on your back. And, it, yeah, I think that was absolutely a factor in his prime being, you know, probably six or seven years rather than what you would hope to be 10 to 12. Yeah, and, and you look and you look at it, uh, and I've got his basketball reference page up, which is where I'm getting a lot of these stats. Uh, he played eight straight years of – 30 of uh, 35 minutes per game or more and six of those six of those eight or seven of those eight he played more than 37 minutes per game which is just wow. uh, I mean yeah. even in today's NBA that just sounds insane I mean I, I think I mean if he I mean again not to not to bring up those intergenerational battles which everyone loves to talk about um, but in today's NBA someone would say give him a day off today. <laughs> And, and try and manage yeah. that a little bit better. I mean, a little bit better. Uh, but you know, you obviously can't go back and, and change any any of that. Um, but just 
yeah, I mean, McGrady just, he had to carry so much and, and he was willing to do it. And, and, and he had a lot of success with it, obviously, um, you know, averaging, just, just putting in all those points. I mean, I, I just, I remember watching him play and, and he could just do it all. I mean, there was the, the defense, defenses really had no way to stop him. It was just a constant onslaught from him. Uh, he could, he could pull up and shoot quickly. He could drive past you. You give him a lane, he's going to dunk over you. Um, you know, he obviously had the off the backboard, off the backboard dunks. <laughs> I mean, uh, that was something no one had ever seen. I mean, uh, what, what, I mean, when you first saw that in that all-star game, what, what was your reaction? Cause I, I mean, I think I, I, I stood up and went crazy when he did it the first time. Yeah. Just absolutely stunning that a guy with so many fundamental gifts, you know, we talked about how well he could see the floor, how well he could elevate, how well he could shoot. You know, a guy that can be that fundamentally sound, know the game, that smart, and then have that much athleticism on top of it. I mean, it's just insane. I remember that dunk and just and just saying to myself, this guy is the most talented player in the NBA. And that was an NBA that even included, you know, Kobe Bryant, Shaquille O'Neal, uh, Tim Duncan and Kevin Garnett in their primes. I mean, that was a pretty good class at that point, you know, early 2000s of the NBA. And Tracy was as talented as any of them. And that's what I keep that, that's what I keep going back to is that this is a sport where even if it doesn't work out, you have to respect individual dominance more than any other sport, because that's what's correlated with, uh, with success at, at the NBA. It's less about, it's less about the overall depth of your roster or more about when it matters. You, know, you have to have a certain depth of roster to get to the big moments, but then once you're there, it just comes down to, do you have that Kevin Durant, that Steph Curry, that LeBron James, hopefully that James Harden level playmaker to really push you over the top. And in the case of Tracy, even if he didn't win a ring, it was pretty clear at his peak that he was one of those guys. Now, certainly, you know, you can get to a point where the sample size is too low. You know, even though Jeremy Lin was that guy for two and a half weeks in New York, certainly you're not going to make a guy a Hall of Famer <laughs> over two and a half weeks. You, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. you know, there is. It wasn't like. Yeah, it wasn't like T-Mac but, did it for a year. I mean, he was a right. seven-time All-NBA player. Right. We're talking about legitimately six or seven years in which he was clearly a top five most dominant feared player in the league. And so that's that's what I keep coming back to is even if the stars didn't align for him to ultimately be the alpha dog on a championship team in a sport where individual dominance means that much, you can't have a Hall of Fame and then exclude a guy who, you know, was that type of player for six or seven years. And I think people are getting more understanding of that now. As I said, I think the importance of team and having the players around him is, you know, more evident now than ever because we talked about what LeBron James and uh, and Kevin Durant have done, the two alpha dogs of this generation, just this decade. We can look at Chris Paul joining Harden in Houston this summer. You're seeing more of that now than ever, and you know, folks didn't like it with Tracy I, because I think they were trying to compare him to eras past. But in this era of free agency, and that was the start of it. Uh, I, I don't think it's really fair to hold that against the guy. You know, as you said earlier, the message was everybody back then always wanted to compare Tracy to Kobe. Well, all of Kobe's, you know, finals exploits, all of the great games he had in the playoffs. Well, yeah, when you're put consistently deep into playoffs because you're playing with Shaquille O'Neal in his prime or Pau Gasol and Lamar Odom in their primes, then, yeah, that gives you an opportunity at, on those big stages that Tracy just never had. So I think you know, it's kind of ironic. I think if Tracy played in today's NBA, I think he would have um, such broad support 
because his limitations would be understood, as opposed to when he was at his best in the early to mid 2000s. I think back then, because so many people were trying to compare not just to Kobe at the time, but then, of course, Michael Jordan in the 90s. And there was just this sort of misguided belief amongst, you know, casual NBA fans that, hey, if you're that good, you can just will your team to you know, to a title or at least to deep into the playoffs. In reality, it's not that simple, especially in today's era of free agency. And so I think Tracy was just a little bit ahead of his time in terms of his limitations and fans not totally getting it. But uh, thankfully, I think fans are starting to get it more now. And I think clearly the media gets it, which is why, um, you know, why he's getting inducted later this week. Before we dive any deeper, I want to take a quick moment, take a step back, And say a quick word from our pals over at SeatGeek. Buying tickets to sports and concerts can be complicated, but there is a better, simpler way to buy with SeatGeek. SeatGeek is the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to live events. With SeatGeek's seamless mobile experience, you can buy and sell tickets in just two taps. SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices, fully guaranteed. There's nothing quite like seeing your favorite team or musician in person, and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for a great value. I have the SeatGeek app on my phone, and it is by far the easiest way I've found to shop for tickets. I can be anywhere, and with just a few taps, I can instantly find seats. SeatGeek is designed to make your ticket buying experience easier than ever. SeatGeek saves you time and money by searching multiple ticket sites to compare prices and find amazing deals. And to get you the most bang for your buck, Seeky grades every ticket based on value to help you immediately identify the best seats that fit your budget. It is so easy and simple to use. Plus, every purchase is fully guaranteed so you can shop for tickets on Seeky with confidence. I can tell you from personal experience that uh, Seeky does help you out uh, with tickets uh, when when you have trouble. I, I had I had trouble last time. Actually, last time I had Seeky. Last time I bought tickets through SeatGeek, uh, had a little bit of an issue, but problem was solved very quickly, got myself into the game, and had a great time. So be sure to make SeatGeek your go-to app for finding the best deals on every type of ticket, from sports and concerts to comedy and theater. You can find it on SeatGeek, and that includes upcoming Orlando Magic games, because this season is right around the corner. Training camp starts in three weeks. And those tickets are already up on SeatGeek if if you're looking to get into the Amway Center. Best of all, my listeners get $20 off their first SeatGeek purchase. Just download the SeatGeek app and enter promo code LONBA today. That's L-O-N-B-A for $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. Yeah, and I, I think that's that's really the interesting question because, you know, when I – like part of me when I think of the Hall of Fame, I, I'm thinking, okay, we're going to tell the story of this sport. Uh, you know, sure. the Hall of Fame exactly. is essentially a, a, a gigantic storybook of here are the yep. important the, – the really important people you've got to know in the sport. And the Hall of Fame itself is, is probably – is an imperfect body. I mean, I, I, you, could, you can listen to over and back podcasts. You can talk – you can listen to Pro Hoops History – uh, they'll tell you the flaws in the Basketball Hall of Fame's voting system and, and who they've let in in the past. Uh, so it's, it's not a perfect thing by any any stretch. Uh, and, and having grown up and, and watched basketball through the early 2000s, I don't think you can tell the story of the 2000s without Tracy McGrady, which is why I think he nope. is absolutely a Hall of Famer. But I, I, I am curious what happens 20 years from now how, how do people relate with Tracy McGrady? And I think what's been really interesting 
in in seeing the reaction to the Hall of Fame is is seeing a lot of the a lot of younger people, even younger than me, who de- probably didn't see McGrady in his prime, and yet his memory kind of still endures for some reason. He's kind of got this this cult following, I, I'd say, and it's obviously because a lot of his scoring, and you look at his stats, and you're like, whoa, this guy was really really good. But I, I mean, I'm curious. Can can McGrady kind of keep that memory of himself alive through YouTube highlights and, and through stories and 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 how you know how how does his I guess mystique continue to grow because it, it kind of feels like he's a Bernard King figure. I mean Bernard King yeah. didn't ha- you know had a pretty short window where he was really good tore up his ACL on time when you don't you did not come back from tearing up your ACL mm-hmm. um, had some huge scoring games. But you know, he's. I think he was benefited a lot by you know being in New York. I mean, New York people kept his kept his memory alive. How I mean, how can can Tracy McGrady kind of keep the mystique about I, about his play alive, even if you never see his highlight in the in the NBA Finals highlight package because he never made an NBA Finals. I honestly think he can because to me, for a lot of the reasons we've been discussing, he's kind of the poster child in some ways. I would say for smart basketball fans for the more analytically minded community, because, you know, before analytics really took off in the last 15 years, basketball analysis tended to be a little simple. And I think there was a resentment against immediately declaring, you know, Kobe's the obvious foil because they were such similar players in terms of their uh, body types, skills, that sort of stuff in the same era of the NBA. But I think there's always been, a little bit of budding resentment, not saying that Kobe Bryant's not a great player because certainly he was, but that he was considered on such another level from players like Tracy strictly because he was in the NBA finals. And of course the reason he's in the NBA finals is because he's got teammates like Shaquille O'Neal in his prime, Pau Gasol, Mar Odom, Andrew Bynum, the, the list goes on and on. So I think Tracy, you know, there's a lot of people that have latched onto him as an example of a guy who was overlooked in his time because of reasons that were not entirely fair to him. And I think that's kind of fueling his legacy because there's a, I I would say a lot of smart people realize that the casual fans did not really give Tracy a, a a fair shake. And so I think that's part of what kind of helps people stay aware of his dominance is that a lot of the leading voices in around the league that, uh, that cover the sport and talk about historically dominant players, they always, they feel like they owe it to Tracy, I think, to, to remind folks just how good he was. And so when you have prominent people, especially those on the analytics side of the fence, constantly referencing him as an example of a guy who might have been overlooked in his time, that certainly helps. The other part of it that I think will keep him at the forefront of folks' minds is that he was a good guy. He was generally very likable, good in the community. It took um, – it took a couple of years. It was a little bit awkward when he left Houston. Uh, he was traded at the 2010 deadline. And it was one of those things I knew not to blame him. It, it was one of those Tracy at that point, his knees were, were going very rapidly. He clearly was not the player that he once was. However, guys that are that great, they're great mentally too. Like they know how, how good they are. Like part of their part of their greatness is their confidence. And so even though it was easy for us to say, you know, watching as media members, as fans, whatever, that, hey, Tracy's not a superstar anymore. Well, he, that that had not gotten to Tracy yet. And I don't blame him for that because his confidence in himself is part of what made him great. And so at the time, there were a few, you know, offhand remarks about how he didn't think he was used properly 
in Houston, that he could get back to star status. First, he was traded to the Knicks, if only he was used properly. And there was a little bit of bitterness against him from Houston fans. But, it, you know, ultimately that faded because I think when you really – you know, when you really think about big picture, it's just a guy who obviously means well, and it's just tough to accept when you have a guy that was that great at his peak. It's tough to accept the fact that you just can't do that anymore. And as time passed, uh, you know, a couple of years passed, and you get away from just a few offhand media comments, they can think about the entire body of work, how great he was in his prime, how good he was in the community. And now every single time he comes to Trader Center, at least, you know, a few times a year, Every single time they show him on the big screen, people give him a standing ovation. People love the guy. People remember, you know, the 13 and 35, the dunk over Sean Bradley, the game winner in Dallas in the playoffs. You remember the high points, how good he was in the community, how respectful he was of the fan base. And, you know, it wasn't perfect. There were always a few awkward things, just like I'm sure there were in Orlando oh, yeah. when he kind of when he kind of forced his way to Houston after that 2004. But it's one of those things as time passes after you get a few years removed that you don't think about, you know, the awkward way that it ended. You think about the entirety of the journey. And the fact is, you know, everywhere he went, the entirety of the journey, you know, there were some pretty spectacular moments. He was a good guy. And Orlando and Houston are, you know, Houston's had a good basketball history, but neither Orlando or Houston is the L.A. Lakers or, or the Boston Celtics. I mean, both organizations, the Tracy McGrady, McGrady era was definitely memorable. And so I think that resonates with a lot of the fans. And I would say both Orlando fans and Houston fans, there's a lot of diehards out there. And so I think just his sheer dominance, you know, both of those fan bases being there for three to four years of his prime, I, I think that helps to kind of you know, the Orlando and Houston fans to keep his memory alive as well. Yeah, I would, I would definitely say McGrady is, is on the Mount Rushmore uh, of magic history. I mean, he's one of the four, but it clearly one. I mean, I kind of say there are the four great, the four greatest players in magic history are not debatable. It's Shaq, Penny, T-Mac and, and Dwight Howard. Uh, and uh, it, every time he, I mean, he's been, he hasn't been back to a magic game very often since, since he retired. Uh, but he is still received very warmly when, when he is. Uh, you know, the way he left was a little bit bitter, but it was kind of clearly more about his relationship with the Magic's general manager at the time. Uh, and, and I think, honestly, I mean, I think he brought up some, some good points about how McGrady handled kind of his role diminishing. Uh, I, I, think, I think some of it, you know, some of his frustration when he left Orlando and probably when he left Houston was this, this frustration that he was doing all he could and, and, and yes. just couldn't, couldn't get more. I mean, he, he, was, he was hungry for that team success. He wanted to win for his team. And, and he, was, I mean, he was doing everything he could to get them there. And, and, and just they, you know, because of this poor supporting cast, because the league he was in, uh, it, it just, he just never could get over that hump, even, even to get out of the first round. I mean, he was, you know, he was up 2-0 in that series against Dallas. He was up 3-1 yep. in that first-round series as an eighth seed against the against the Detroit. eventual yep. conference finalist Detroit Pistons. Um, he had a, just a lot of those moments where it was just like, I mean, you would sit there as a fan even and say, "What more can this guy do?" I mean, I, I, I yep. mean, I don't blame players for wanting to find better situations, especially when their whole careers are kind of judged on how their team performs. I mean, I think. Tracy McGrady's career could easily have been very forgotten because even though he has done so much and, and was such a dominant figure for a, a, a pretty long period of time, you know, five, six, seven years, he didn't have the team success. You, you don't see his highlights in anything very much. I mean, you have to 
kind of dig around a little bit to, to, to find games of importance, of, of, of national relevance and importance to, to show, to say, this, this is the Tracy McGrady defining game. I mean, the, the, 30, the, 35, the 13 points in 35 seconds is kind of built for YouTube. And that's, you know, it came before YouTube yeah. existed. Um, it would have been fun to see that as a, as a, as a GIF, um, uh, back, yeah. you know, back then, but, uh, it, you know, it, it, it's, it's hard to define his legacy. And, and I think the other point that I thought you brought up that was interesting was about Kobe Bryant, uh, you know, kind of the guy that he's directly compared to yep. the year when we talk about what's, what's funny is yeah, Kobe's got all these titles and he's played all these significant games and we talk about those, but when we really talk about building kind of the legend of Kobe Bryant, we're really talking about those years right after Shaq left when he was just chuck. I mean, for lack of a better term, he was just chucking and putting up these insane scoring yeah. numbers and scoring what 81 points, whatever it was. Um, that's when the legend of Kobe was built. And those teams were no better than Tracy McGrady's teams. I mean, right. am, am I wrong uh, to yeah, say I mean, that? that? No, I mean, that team against the Lakers, remember they had the 3 1 lead in the first round? Yeah, that 3 1 lead against the, the Suns. Qu- yeah, yeah. When Kobe hit the buzzer beater in Game Four, pounding his chest, and then they lost the next three. And in Game, you know, Game Seven was the infamous one where Kobe basically refused to shoot because he was so upset with his, uh, you know, supporting cast in the second half of that game. So, yeah, it's one of those. I, I also think, in a weird way, the evolution of LeBron James, I think, is helping, you know, folks accept Tracy a little more. And the reason I make that comparison, one of the reasons that uh, I saw a lot of casual fans that back in that era, the early 2000s pushed back against Tracy hard was that Tracy was so cerebral. He was such a good passer. He was, he did not always take the shot in the final 10, 20 seconds. If one of his teammates had a better shot, he was okay with passing. And for the longest time, there was a huge stigma against that. There was a huge, uh, you know, people were supportive of hero ball because they probably it still, I mean, like, especially, especially in that era. And there probably still is a little bit of a stigma. against. Yeah. There's still a little bit of a play. You want the best player taking the shot. Just no matter what, just hold the ball and take that last shot with a second left, you know, pose for it because that's what Jordan did. And, you know, Kobe did it to an extreme. But I think we're starting to see more, you know, as I said earlier, there's a shift towards analytics. There's a shift toward, I would say, smarter basketball fandom now. And I think LeBron James is a big part of that because, yes, LeBron over the course of his career, of course, he's had buzzer beaters. But LeBron has never been that guy that's going to force a shot no matter what with you know the game close in a minute left he is perfectly willing to pass the ball and i think over the course of lebron becoming you know at worst the second best player in the history of the sport people you know even the casual fans are begrudgingly accepting that you don't have to be that traditional alpha dog in the sense that kobe was that you have to take the shot with 10 seconds left and that proves that you're a man that proves that you're the alpha you know no if you're cerebral and you can get a better shot for your teammates which is one of the things that tracy did with how well he saw the floor and how well he could pass. I think now, you know, today's rise and I, I would say smarter basketball fandom and LeBron James playing a big part in that. People are realizing that that style of player is also really freaking good. And so I think that's another reason why maybe Tracy wasn't fully appreciated in his time. But now when you look back, especially when you look back and judge him through the prism of the game today, you can see, you know, in those those prime five, six, seven years, just how dominant he really was. Yeah, I mean, you look at his stats uh, in Orlando. In his four seasons in Orlando, he averaged five point one assists per game. In Houston, he averaged four point seven assists per game. And this is a guy that had a usage rate often 
over 30%. I mean, all four years in Orlando, his usage rate was, was higher than 30%. Uh, in his first four years in Houston, it was higher than 30%, which means he's got the ball in his hands a lot. And, and then the, and a third of the time, the ball is the, the possession is ending with him doing something, whether it's shooting or, or getting an assist or shooting or turning it over essentially. And so for him to still get five assists per game, when he's taking so many shots, you know, averaging 20 shots per game is, is, I mean, some of it is, yeah, he should be doing that, but it's really incredible. I mean, he's, I mean, he, he wasn't maybe the breakneck, you know, assault on the basket that Russell Westbrook was last year. Yeah. But, you know, Russell Westbrook was very much in the same vein, 30, you know, uh, whatever, whatever it was, 35% usage rate um, guy who always had the ball in his hands. And yet he's not only scoring at an incredible rate, He's dishing the ball out. He's finding ways to get others involved, even if maybe the supporting cast can't step up enough to, to relieve some of that pressure and and get you know and get the team further along in the playoffs or get the team a better playoff spot. And it, you know, of course, Oklahoma City remedied that a little bit by by grabbing Paul Georgia this summer. Uh, and, and you know, Oklahoma City's going to be a better team for it. And obviously, you have better players. You can kind of share that yep. share that that creating creation burden. You're going to be a better team for it. I mean, I think you see that. Throughout NBA history, I don't. I don't think any of this is new, even though it feels new the way maybe the players are controlling this movement a lot more nowadays. Yeah, I, it, it's been a dynamic that's been there for a while. It's just uh, people notice it more, of course, because of, and the rise of social any media, attention. of course. Yeah, 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 plays into that as well. But yeah, I mean, I I loved in Houston how he evolved. He became more of a playmaker. I think that was part of also, you know, you look at. Um, when his decline started, I think maybe around 2006 was when his athleticism started to slip. But that's also when his assist totals went up. He averaged six and a half a game in uh, 06, 07. He averaged almost six a game in 07, 08. And that was before. I mean, I know we're, we're now in this free-flowing NBA where, you know, James Harden, even before he made the move to point guard, was averaging, you know, eight, nine assists per night. But back then, especially in a Jeff Van Gundy offense, that's one thing I would say to Remember with this is a guy who, you know, for his prime years in Houston played under an incredibly slow, you know, as lethargic yeah, and true. controlled pace as you could do in the NBA. And this guy was still averaging, you know, around six assists per game, despite, you know, not having that many uh, shooters or creators alongside him, despite not playing in a true open court system. And, you know, as his game as his athleticism started to fall, and as I said, that was around 2006, I think he uh, evolved with it. You know, that's when he started to become more of a facilitator because he knew he couldn't be the 32 points per game scorer he was at his very peak in Orlando. He knew he couldn't absorb that level of contact on constant drives to the basket. So he had to improve his shooting. He had to improve his passing, his facilitator, facilitating, and he evolved with it. And that's why, you know, despite a guy who had a very chronic back situation, also had, you know, the cartilage in his knees breaking down. At the same time, he was able to play, you know, close to 10 uh, prime years in the league before he completely fell off. And so that to me is a testament to just how smart of a player he was. And so you combine his, you know, athletic brilliance with that level of intellect. And, and yeah, even if he was a little before his time, he's a clear Hall of Famer. Yeah, yeah, and 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 you're probably right there. The fact that he didn't have a slow decline, he just kind of like it, the injuries just became too much for him to play through. Yeah, uh, the fact that he didn't have a slow decline probably lost the chance for fans to 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 appreciate him more and and kind of cement yes. his status. I mean, I think what he did in those seven years, seven eight years, makes him a Hall of Famer. I absolutely agree with that. But 
the, the, the fact that, you know, maybe he didn't have to transition to being more of a facilitator playmaker uh, and that, you know, he was this great scorer and then all of a sudden it stopped. He didn't, he didn't have, he didn't learn, he didn't have to learn like Kobe did how to have a strong post game, which he would have been killer at. I mean, the guy sure. was six, eight, yes. taller than everybody, taller than everyone that was guarding him. You know, he didn't have to learn, he didn't have to kind of evolve his game to meet his age because he, he never had the opportunity to do that. And so kind of the appreciation that we get for, I think, I think you're right. The appreciation that we would get for a lot of these hall of famers by kind of watching them slowly go into the sunset, hopefully not hang on too long. Um, we never got that with T-Mac. It was, it was, it was, he had this big burst of potential. Uh, he, he lived up to the, to the peak of his potential and then his body just robbed him of, of any career after yep. that. Uh, and, and, and there's nothing you can do about that. It's just kind of the bad luck of the draw. Um, yep. You know, it, some of it might have to have had to do with the weight he had to carry early on in his career or early in his prime. But, uh, you know, McGrady was just an absolutely brilliant player. Um, you know, I, I would vent, I would probably say he's, he's he was my favorite player to watch. I mean, I, I, I grew up kind of learning the game of basketball while watching Tracy McGrady. And, and so, like, I understood... He was really, I mean, Shaq and Penny, I, I'm, I'm, I was probably a little young for Shaq and Penny. Like, I remember seeing them, but not, like, conceptually getting what was going on on the floor. Uh, Team Act, to me, was the first guy that I actually understood what was happening and, and what I was watching. Yeah. It was truly special. And one small point that I should have mentioned earlier, but I think the fact that he's so active as an analyst now, of course, there's a lot of things for ESPN. Most notably, yeah. he's done the jump a lot with Rachel Nichols. I think that actually keeps to that's good for his legacy. I think first Absolutely. off, he's really, he's really good at that. He's a very smart guy. He's very articulate. And uh, so of course it speaks uh, to the same traits intellectually that made him such a dominant player on the floor. But beyond that, I think you see a player that, you know, not just was that dominant of a scorer, but is that insightful in how he sees the game. And so I think that certainly helps. Well, a, it helps to keep his legacy alive, but B for a younger generation who might not have been fully aware of the league 10 years ago, 10 to 15 years ago, when Tracy was at his peak, that I think that makes it all the, the more likely that they will go to YouTube and learn more about, you know, Tracy at his prime and just basically getting, you know, the respect that he's due for just how dominant he was when he was at his peak. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I think that's a really good point. And, and of course, like Rachel Nichols and Zach Lowe do a good job bringing in historical context and, yep. and even highlighting some of his games as well. Uh, during during the during that show, I mean, they'll show old highlights of Trace McGrady, and, and hopefully, yep. it gets people interested in watching some of his old games. Which would be the good time to plug that uh, tomorrow on NBA, or Tuesday on NBA TV, September fifth. I believe they're showing Trace McGrady games all day on, wow. on NBA TV. That's pretty uh, cool because the, the Hall of Fame the Hall of Fame induction ceremony is coming up sure. on Friday. So, uh, if you're looking to if, if if you're listening to this podcast, whether you're a Magic fan, a Rockets fan, an NBA fan, or whatever. Um, and you've never seen Tracy McGrady play, the very best Tracy McGrady games will be on NBA TV all day Tuesday. If you're home, if you're not, record them. Um, I, I, I've got the Magic games recorded. Uh, I think they're showing game three against the Bucks in the 01 playoffs, mm-hmm. uh, game one against the Pistons in the 03 playoffs, and then his 62-point game against the Washington Wizards, which I have watched before. And the only thing, which I was, I actually was at that game and have watched it back and, uh, the, the five minutes they include of the Magic without Tracy McGrady is the hardest thing I've ever had to watch on a basketball floor, and I, I, I yeah. cover the current Magic team. Um, I'm yeah. sure they'll have other. I'm sure they'll have. I'm sure they'll have the the 13 points in 35 seconds game on there. 
as well yep. as a couple of Houston, a couple of Rockets games on as well. And if, if they're smart, they'll also throw in that the All Star game from uh, yeah, no doubt two when he when he threw it off the backboard and would have won MVP if the East had won that game, I think. But that's yeah. neither here nor there. Um, since I since I have you here and and we're kind of, and we're running close to the end of the show, I I, I, I well one more Tracy McGrady question. This is this is. This, I think, sure. is the question that we need to, to ask and settle. They don't induct players with a jersey. But is Tracy McGrady remembered as a Magic player or a Rocket player? That is... That's a hard question. That, that, that's a really hard question. Um, I lean... <laughs> Yeah, I, I lean Rocket, but I'm not going to be – I wouldn't argue with you if you said Orlando. The reason the reason I lean Rocket is because I think those teams were a little higher profile. And so yeah. I think – you know, I think when you remember Tracy in his NBA career, I think more people – of course, it will be what should have and could have been. But people remember those teams with uh, he and Yao Ming, also the year that they had Ron Artest. But ultimately, Tracy didn't even play in the playoffs that year. I think, I think Tracy as a rocket is slightly higher on the consciousness scale in terms of the casual NBA fan because the expectations were higher. However, I think Tracy, the basketball player, was at his best in, in Orlando because even the second year in Houston, he suffered major injuries and between the back and the knee, you know, it, it was a fairly gradual decline for a couple of years. But you could tell he was not the guy that scored 32 points per game. In Orlando, so really, I could see it both ways. I think if this were like the NFL and you put him in a jersey, he might be in a Rocket jersey just because, um, just because he was more, you know, global in Houston. Yeah. There were higher expectations. Not, not at to that mention, point. not to mention his his marketing. I mean, I think going to Houston, being with Yao Ming. I mean, yeah, Tracy exactly. is still immensely popular in China, and I think some of that predated and Houston. He still, but going and, to Houston just made him it made yeah. him crazy popular. Yeah, like and he still, still goes over there and gets mobbed. Yeah, and he's still fairly involved in the Rockets franchise. So mm-hmm. that's why I would lean Houston. Yeah. However, from a from a strictly basketball standpoint, I would say Orlando because even in Houston, I don't think he ever completely got to the level that he was say in you know 2001 2002 2003 i think that was the peak for tracy mcgrady the basketball player and so that's why i'd say if it's strictly basketball basketball value nothing else then yeah i'd say orlando yeah i i i think i mean you gave a good political answer there um i think you're probably right that that ultimately uh fans will remember him as a houston rocket more than an orlando magic although I, i i agree with you i think his better years were with the magic um, I, I, I mean, you look at the way I guess he's remembered, or the the way kind of these these historical teams have been kept alive. Uh, NBA 2K features a trace, a trace the I think they feature the 09 Rockets and include a healthy mm. Tracy McGrady on that team. Oh wow! Oh, so that's, that's, that's oh man, that's a really good that, team. Bad memories. Yeah. Yeah. No, I had to I had to play them in, in historic domination. It, it was tough. Um, yeah. And then they also have a, a, the, the 2000 Raptors or the, the, I think the, his last Raptors team. He's also, oh, yeah. they when, don't have any, when he, in, when he invents, we're on the same yeah. team. Yeah. Yeah. And they don't have any magic teams. Not that I'm complaining because they shouldn't have any magic teams. Although, you know, McGrady's on the all time magic team. He's a starter on there. I think he's going to be a really fun player to play. Uh, the magic version of Trace McGrady is always fun to play as um, the only argument, the only piece of like culture, Historically, that I can come up with of T Mac in a Magic uniform is like Mike, which is the greatest basketball film ever made. But um, 
he's he's he only has a a, a small role in like Mike yeah. in a magic uniform. So uh, I think you're probably right that that if if the basketball Hall of Fame inducted him uh, with a jersey on, he'd probably be wearing a Rockets jersey. So begrudgingly, I will I will concede that point to you. Um, before we wrap things up here, uh, Houston Rockets had kind of a busy off season this summer. Uh, you know, anything anything change with them? Like, uh, you know, did they, <laughs> did they get a new point guard or something? Uh, what, what, what's yeah. what's what's the outlook looking like for for the Rockets as we get now three weeks away from training camp? Yeah, well, uh, yeah, they make they got this guy named Chris Paul. You may or may not have uh, heard of him. He's not. So um, it'll be yeah, it, it'll be interesting. I, I think you know fans in Houston are excited because uh, it, it always. If you go into a season with clearly, you know, one of the top two most talented rosters in the NBA, you're pretty excited. Now, of course, it's tempered by the fact that the bar has never been as high as it is right now with the Warriors at number one. So, you know, it's tempered by that. But at the same time, if you know, the Rockets, other than the Warriors, the Rockets might be the closest thing to an it team in the league. And what I mean by that is a destination that players want to go. Of course, we've seen the Carmelo Anthony thing drag on all summer long with him only willing to accept a trade to Houston. And I think that helps because, you know, we've seen historically Cleveland be that team, that non-Warriors that, you know, everyone wants to play for, but Cleveland's not that team anymore as evidenced by the uncertainty with LeBron's situation. So for Houston to add Chris Paul to uh, James Harden, you know, Houston's definitely a destination now, which is exciting. As far as the next two weeks, everyone is kind of on edge to see what happens with Carmelo Anthony because, it's one of those things uh, people in Houston still think it can happen, but no one knows what's going to happen until almost training camp because obviously the Knicks are not enthralled with the offers led by Ryan Anderson that are coming uh, from Houston or whatever the three and four team packages would be. So um, it, it's one of those things. Are the Knicks truly willing to bring Carmelo to training camp and deal with, you know, deal with the distraction, all the things that come with his situation being unresolved, maybe they are, maybe they aren't. Uh, we're not. I don't think we're really going to know though until you know around the fifteenth or twentieth of this month. Once you kind of get deadline pressure in there, so I think that's what everyone in Houston is waiting on. It's like you know, yeah, Chris Paul and James Harden. That's a great foundation, but are they going to get the big three? Is Carmelo coming? You know, that's the big question that's been asked for months. And I think you know, ultimately, there's a lot of posturing on all sides of the deal, and we're not really going to get a true indication. For another week or two until you get some semblance of deadline pressure and so that's what everybody in houston these days is focused on is okay once training camp gets within a week what's going to happen with the rockets and knicks is that deadline pressure going to ratchet up and force one or both sides to you know move closer to the middle and do a deal so that's kind of where everyone in houston is people are excited about the team certainly it's very good but then you know the first name on everyone's mind is carmelo wondering what's going to happen with that and so you know for the for the meantime, it's just kind of sitting back and waiting, and then we'll see what happens when training camp gets here and see if that deadline, you know, pressures anyone into action. Yeah, it's definitely going to be interesting. I mean, assuming the roster kind of stays as it is, how do you think the the Chris Paul, James Harden dynamic is going to work? I mean, we've seen, you know, maybe we saw a lot of push and pull between Harden and, and Howard, and, and some of that might that might have been just Dwight, Dwight being Dwight. Uh, you know, I, I kind of – you know, the thing that pops into my head was, you know, I really thought the Ty Lawson-James Harden pairing was going to work really well because just there'd be so much yeah. pressure on defenses with pick and rolls. And Ty Lawson, it might have been a Ty Lawson thing. Uh, yeah. But how do, you, how do you think that dynamic's going to work? Because now I'm, Harden spent last year's point guard. Now he's going to have the ball out of his hands a little bit more. Yeah. 
I, I'm excited about it. There's certainly going to be a transition. One thing that I do think plays to the Rockets' favor, I saw a statistic today that they had the easiest October and November schedule in the league. So I think that will help a lot with the integration. Unfortunately, with Ty Lawson, as you said, I'm a big believer that the vast majority of those problems were, were just with Ty Lawson for a lot of yeah. reasons. Of course, he's had a lot of off-the-court issues. He's just not a particularly good NBA uh, point guard anymore. But, uh, you know, will, will it be a transition to play off the ball more for James? Yeah, but I think he's capable of doing that. Obviously, he did in Oklahoma City alongside Russell Westbrook and Kevin Durant. I think he's always been willing to do that. And I think he also – I think what happened to the Rockets in the playoffs this year also kind of hit home the fact that um, it's something he needs for the longevity of his career. Because when you look at especially Game 5 in San Antonio and it's tied 2-2 and it just seemed like the Rockets and Harden specifically hit a wall – I think it was pretty clear that that role as the only true facilitator on a team that plays at such an extremely high pace, I think ultimately the wear and tear caught up with the Rockets and, you know, mentally, physically, the word I keep coming back to, uh, to sum up the last two games and the Rockets Spurs playoff series was just fatigue. And so I think uh, if he didn't know it already, I think that forced Harden to realize not just for the short term, but long term of his career that, you know, he probably does need to figure out a way to, have someone else relieve some of that playmaking burden in some of the same ways that we discussed about Tracy or earlier yeah. in this podcast, Tracy McGrady and his prime. I think there's some themes there, but the main thing, the main reason I'm optimistic about it. And Mike D'Antoni has said this as well. It's different because in the case of Chris and James, they want to play together. This entire thing, you know, the more you've read about this summer, Harden was recruiting Chris Paul during the season. They've basically been together nonstop in the off season. And I think that's going to help so much because the two of them have a relationship with each other. They seem to like each other. Actually, one of the things I really like... They played with each that, other in the, Olymp- in the Olympics, right? Yeah. And I actually like the fact that Chris Paul... You know, Chris Paul's a notorious hard-ass. He drives people so hard. And I think that's a good balance with Harden, who, you know, at times has fans getting on him and wondering, is he too casual in terms of his off-court activity, stuff like that. I think having Chris Paul, you know, in his ear to constantly drive him, I think that's a good balance between Harden's relaxed nature and you know, Chris being a cutthroat competitor. But the bottom line is, for me, is that because they like each other, I think there's a synergy in the personalities that wasn't there with Harden and Dwight. The thing with Harden and Dwight, and now one thing, I I, kind of push back at the idea that Harden and Dwight failed. They didn't win a title, and part of it because the Warriors came so good, but, you know, the first two years, they won 54 and 56 games. The second year, they got to Western Conference Finals. The third year, it kind of fell apart. Part of that you know, that everything went wrong for the Rockets that year. The Ty Lawson thing, Dwight Howard physically was starting to really decline. But, uh, you know, it was never a chemistry nightmare. It was never a problem. It just never fully clicked. And part of it is that when the Rockets went after Dwight Howard, it was one of those things, they went after him because he was the top free agent on the market at the time. It's like, hey, we've got James Harden. We know we're destination. And in that summer, July 2013, uh, Dwight was the best on the market, so we're gonna yeah. we're gonna make this work. It's one of those things, you know. He's the best on the market. We're gonna get the best player available. We know we're a destination with James, so we're gonna strike while the iron is hot. And in some ways, it was kind of like trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. And that, you know, Harden and Dwight, they never really had a relationship. I wouldn't say they ever clashed, but they just never fully clicked, especially off the court. And I think part of it, they didn't have that friendship, that relationship going in or off the court. They were just two very different people, as opposed to, you know, the Chris Paul signing is all orchestrated specifically by James Harden. Because it's not like, you know, it's not like Chris Paul just went to the Rockets because he had no other options. You know, in the case of Dwight Howard, he went to the Rockets because, well, not only were the Rockets, you know, offering the max, but they were clearly the best option of his, 
you know, teams yeah, at the time. Absolutely. Chris Paul this summer, he could have stayed with the Clippers, who continue to be, you know, a solid playoff team every year. Blake Griffin still in his 20s. You know, he could have taken $200 million from the Clippers. He could have also gone to San Antonio. That's where a lot of people thought he would go. In San Antonio, you know, Kawhi Leonard, Greg Popovich, you know, it's arguably the uh, best coach in the history of the league. So Chris Paul had legitimate options, but he chose Houston in large part because of his relationship with Harden. And so that's why I think I'm more optimistic about it than I was with Dwight, because Harden and Dwight, uh, you know, they never really clashed to the extent that I think a lot of people who aren't in Houston kind of think they did, but they never clicked either because, you know, you were kind of always, it was like an arranged marriage. That's the best way to put it, you, okay. you know? Uh, it, yeah, just an arranged marriage. And they're trying to make it work because they knew they were really talented and, you know, circumstances said Dwight was the guy on the market, but, you know, there, there was never that true, um, it, you know, synergy. chemistry, but yeah, yeah, chemistry, synergy, whatever you want to call it, as opposed whatever to buzzword Harden and Chris, yeah, Harden and Chris, Harden and Chris Paul are together specifically because they really like each other and they want to be together. So, you know, all that said, there's still going to be a learning curve. There's still going to be X's and O's. Both have still got to get ready to play off the ball more than they have the last couple of years. So, you know, I don't expect it to be easy from day one, but I'm more optimistic about it than I was uh, with Dwight because, you know, if you if these types of players want to play together, it has a way of working out. The analogy Mike D'Antoni made was to the, uh, you know, the Team USA teams that, of course, both Chris and James have been on. And, you know, on those Team USA teams, we have lots of players who are used to having the ball. But they they find a way to make it work because they want to be on that team. They enjoy being around each other. And so hopefully in Houston, that's what happens with with Chris and James as well. Yeah, it's it's definitely going to be really, really interesting. I mean, this this season just seems like it's going to have a lot of those interesting kind of storylines. I mean, the NBA, the NBA, I I always I always find the NBA is is probably the most predictable of the major sports in the United States. Yes. Uh, But no doubt. We don't watch it to see who wins the championship. It's just it, – they're just consistent, fascinating storylines and fascinating play throughout the league. And, and that's why the NBA is, is so engaging because it's, it's so much more about the personalities and the journey of getting to the championship rather than actually yep. who wins. I mean those – I mean we, we spent an hour talking about Tracy McGrady and the fact that, that he couldn't win a championship and yet he still resonates with people and, and uh, is, is going to the Hall of Fame on Friday. Uh, so good, yep. good way to tie it all in. Um, Ben, uh, tell tell everyone where where they can where they can find you, or at least my listeners where where they can find you and listen to Locked On Rockets. Sure, uh, at Ben Dubose is my Twitter handle. At Locked On Rockets is the show handle, and I write for uh, Sports Talk Seven Ninety website is Sports Seven Ninety dot com. Uh, that's the flagship radio station here in Houston for the Rockets. Uh, you go under sports790.com, and I've got a uh, blog called Talking Rockets where I've got a lot of my uh, stories and podcasts. But yeah, at Ben Dubose on Twitter, at Locked On Rockets. Uh, you know, apologies if you're not a big Houston or Mizzou sports guy. I might uh, might not be the best follow because I do tweet a lot. But uh, yeah, we have a lot of good content at Locked On Rockets. If you want to learn more about the Rockets, please don't hesitate to um, you know follow us on Twitter, subscribe, uh, and listen to our shows because certainly it should be a pretty fun year in Houston. Yeah, def- definitely should be. De- uh, definitely give give his show a listen. It's been shouted out by Doris, Doris Burke, which is, is the ultimate, yeah. com- ultimate compliment um, that, that you can that you can receive in in the NBA. Uh, because ESPN doesn't cover the Magic, we have not been shouted out by Doris Burke. But you can find Locked On Magic on iTunes, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, all the fun places you download podcasts, just like you can find Locked On Rockets. And, of course, you can follow me on Twitter at philiprr underscore omd, as well as at omagicdaily. Uh, that's going to do it for me. On behalf of Ben, 
Uh, this has been Philip of Locked On Magic and OrlandoMagicDaily.com. I will check you guys out tomorrow on another episode of Locked On Magic. You are Locked On Magic, your daily Orlando magic podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. It's Ace's biggest LED light bulb sale of the year. Right now, buy one, get one free on our best-selling LED light bulbs. Our four-pack of LED bulbs is $9.99, and our two-pack of LED floodlights is only $12.99. Buy one, get one free. There's no limit on how much you can save, so stock up now. Hurry in. Buy one, get one free on long-lasting 10-year LED bulbs, now through Monday, only at your neighborhood Ace. See participating stores for details.